You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. And it is, it's a beautiful morning out there. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast on your 3CR community radio station. And uh, today, I threatened last week that I was going to go to the launch of Grounded, which is a new NGO uh, all about um, land trusts and affordability, a model for uh, affordable housing. And uh, it, it was fascinating. So I'm going to uh, play a couple, a couple of the speakers because one of them is a woman called Sonia Arakel and she's from an organisation called Think Forward and she gives an intergenerational perspective on why unaffordable housing is uh, undermining the future of uh present generations, the younger generations, and this is a a really big deal. But then there was a a speaker called Bob Knowles, and he's from the Apollo Bay Chamber of Commerce, and his talk is is about what should be one of the biggest stories of our time, uh, amongst the many, uh, when it comes to affordable housing or unaffordable housing, uh, is uh, that... uh, People living in country towns across Victoria and I'm assuming in other parts of the country are being priced out of their uh, usual abodes. They can no longer live, afford to live in the towns. But further to that, the unaffordability of houses in their towns, because the majority of them are now owned by uh, either uh, people who are renting them out or are their holiday houses or their bed, bed uh, what is it, uh, be, be bear, you know, where you bed and breakfast places, you know, uh, Airbnb and B, that's it. Um, and what's happening is that uh, a whole lot of them are empty and they can't even afford to hire people to pay, uh, to in, uh, in key positions such as police people or nurses or any of those t- teachers because the people who they hire can't afford to live in the town. Now, this is a big story. Anyway, I thought I'd share because uh, oh, I found that really fascinating because it's not just about land trusts because these are grounded is uh, putting forward a, a proposition and you can, I'll give you the information about where you can find out about land trusts and grounded, etc., etc. But these are perspectives on unaffordable uh, housing stock uh, that goes straight into the heart of uh, Australian uh, social fabric. But anyway, moving right along. 
after that, we're going to uh, revisit asbestos. Uh, Friday was uh, National uh, Asbestos Awareness Day, which you may or may not have known, uh, and it kicks off what is uh, National Awareness Month. And no, it hasn't gone away. Uh, it is one of the most devastating diseases, um, 247% higher than road deaths still, and we're going to find out more about that and why, it's, and why and how people can be careful not to be one of the statistics because the once uh, people get or it's diagnosed um, a mesophilomena, if I said it correctly, uh, resulting from uh, a contact with uh, asbestos dust, um, people have 12 months to live. In fact, it's a, a pretty appalling um, disease. This is the week that was. Kevin's going to have a yarn and <laughs> he's becoming more and more um, uh, sharp as we go towards the end of the year. Uh, and then we're going to talk to Don Sutherland. The last time for the year, I should imagine, uh, he's going to go through the IR bill and or update on wages and profits in context of the bill. So that's worth waiting for. I have to uh, tell you that um, next week is a very important week. It is the um, uh, the celebration of disability um uh, day and uh, there's going to be seven hours of uh, programming focusing on disability. It's uh, going to uh, focus on uh, rest and survival. Is a ta- rest is a survival for ta- uh, is a survival tactic. Anyway, I'll, I'll let them tell you all about it. Tune in to Rest is Survival, three CRs International Day of People with Disability broadcast. On 3rd of December, 7am to 7pm, we're talking about the role of rest in the anti-capitalist revolution. With programming by multiply marginalised disabled people and disabled broadcasters from the 3CR community. Visit 3cr.org.au forward slash Disability Day 2022. Now before we get on to... um intergenerational perspective on housing unaffordability, Uh, I thought I would uh, uh, read something from uh, Human Rights Watch. Now, this is in relation to Qatar and the World Cup, and it is a perfect example of why the narrative, the mainstream narrative, is not the narrative of the majority. It's only the narrative of the bosses, the money class, the owners, Uh, because for seven years you may be aware that unions, especially construction unions uh, such as the CFMEU, have been um, telling people that uh, the uh, safety uh, arrangements at the building sites for the infrastructure of uh, the World Cup um, facilities in Qatar are a death sentence uh, for uh, workers. And uh, this was before the uh, 6,000 people that have been recorded who who have died uh, on that site. Uh, so when people are watching gleefully the um, World Cup, 
they're running across the blood of all those workers. And it should be noted that uh, many of those immigrant workers from places like Nepal and India and Pakistan and other places, they have actually paid for the pleasure to be allowed to work in scurrilous conditions in places like Qatar during the World Cup. Now, uh, Human Rights Watch put out a a piece which uh, was pretty sobering, but uh, as we say, this is you know seven years after you know uh, it was known that uh, this workplace was a disaster and something should be done, and uh, it's co-authored by Lisa Mayer. Money can't buy you love. One of the slightly frustrating things about working in communications for human rights causes is seeing a repressive government spend cajillions on international public relations firms to try to clean up its image. All the human rights organisations in the world put together couldn't ever hope to have the kind of money that even one abusive government can throw at global communications. What gives me solace, however, is knowing that it hardly ever works. You can always tell a big PR push is happening because all of a sudden the same specific pro-government line appears in news articles, in commentary pieces and across Twitter, usually in replies from spammy Accounts only saying one thing over and over. Case in point today is Qatar and its hired PR guns trying to spin a line that no one ever cared about human rights issues in hosts of major sporting events before World Cup 2022. You're supposed to feel sorry for poor picked on Qatar. It's nonsense, of course. Human rights Watch exposed China's abuses in and around the 28, 20, 2008 Olympics in Beijing and their 2022 Olympics too. We did the same with Russia's abuses for the 2014 Olympics and Russia's World Cup in 2018. The list goes on. Brazil's 2014 World Cup, Brazil's 2016 Olympics, Azerbaijan's Ab- Ab- Formula One Grand Prix. And we already have the 2026 US Mexican Canadian World Cup in our sights. So, no, Qatar is not picked on, but we are targeting Qatar for good reason. In building Qatar's World Cup, thousands of migrant workers lost their lives to unexplained causes or suffered injuries, and many more have been victims of wage theft by employers. The government of Qatar and FIFA should compensate them and their families properly. Thankfully, Qatar's PR spend isn't working and decision makers around the world know the truth. Just yesterday, for example, the European Parliament urged FIFA and Qatar to compensate migrant workers for widespread abuses they suffered. Rather than wasting money on international PR firms, Qatar and FIFA should spend it on that compensation. Ain't it the truth? The other good thing that happened this week, of course, was that Baker Boy swept the ARI Awards and I thought I'd play a piece. This is a very full-on piece. It it, it um, features um, Uncle Jack Charles.
Seen Australian, it's not just an ordinary comic. How would you describe this comic, Charlie? It's a comic book for adults. We're taking Australian history, turning it on its head, and making it real history. It's funny and it's dark, it's supernatural. We're going to launch the comic. Robbie and I will both be there from six o'clock. Carol Carpenter from Us Mob playing a bunch of songs. We do a bit of a smoking ceremony to bring everybody in. To all the listeners out there, if you're interested in coming along, it's Thursday, the 1st of December, 6 o'clock at Wolfhound Cafe on Brunswick Street for Crime Scene Australia. When you know your history, you know you know where you're coming from. A 3CR supporter.
You're with Annie on the Solidarity Breakfast and we'll move on to Grounded. It's uh, the launch of the uh, Land Trust's affordable housing concept. Uh, if you want to know more about that, go to grounded.com. Oh, no, sorry. Grounded.org.au. You can find all the information there. But uh, there are a couple of speakers and Sonia Arakal, uh, she is from an organisation called Think Forward and she gives an intergenerational perspective on housing unaffordability and why she and her organisation is interested in um, the concept of land trusts. I'd like to introduce our next speaker, which is co-founder of an organisation called Think Forward, which Carl says is finally an NGO representing the next generation's interests. Uh, everyone, please welcome Sonia Arkal. Good evening, everyone. Um, as both said, my name is Sonia and I run Think Forward. And we are an advocacy group for young Australians who want to see issues of intergenerational fairness um, front and centre of policy making in this country. So today I want to touch on what intergenerational fairness is, why it's relevant to housing, and how important the work of advocacy organisations like Grounded will be to addressing Australia's largest uh, and most important policy issue of housing. But before I start, I'd like to take a moment to um, acknowledge the Wajak Noongar people, whose land I grew up on, um, and whose land I call my home in Perth in Western Australia. I'd like to acknowledge their elders past, present and emerging, and acknowledge that intergenerational thinking has been a part of First Nations philosophy for tens and thousands of years. And as we think about alternative economic models, I look not to the US or the UK, but to First Nations policymaking and philosophical frameworks, which are grounded in values such as custodianship, sustainability, and obligations to future generations. So what is intergenerational fairness other than a word with lots of syllables? Well, it describes this idea that economic and social fairness between the generations is a key value of our society. It's not about bashing baby boomers or avocado toast. Um, it's about this implicit intergenerational bargain that underpins the relationship between younger and older Australians and our tax and spending priorities that facilitates that. It compromises two fundamental ideas. One, that working age Australians contribute to the care of older Australians and younger Australians can expect the generation that comes next to do the same. And second, that economic growth and social development will enable each successive generation to enjoy rising living standards. So young people want to live a quality life, confidently move through the same stages as generations prior. An education, a well-paid career, secure homes, starting a family and secure retirement. But many young people today in Australia are fearful that they won't be able to enjoy those same economic stages of life. And in fact, there's economic evidence to, to say that the millennial generation is widely forecasted to be the first generation since federation with, with worse economic outcomes than generations before. Now, we think this is because of short-termism, whether it's because three-year election terms or uh, market-based models in housing. As a society, we are losing our ability to make policy in the interests of younger and future generations. We've lost our ability to think in generational timelines, in key policy areas like taxation, infrastructure, and of course, housing. So 
Younger Australians are less likely today to own a home than young people in the past. In 2016, 45% of 30 year olds owned a home. In 1981, the figure was much higher at 67%. And those that do are taking on much bigger debt and increasing financial stress, limiting their life um, outcomes and decisions, uh, um, as Carl's mentioned earlier. And this isn't because of discretionary funding or young people eating out all the time. In fact, the Grattan Institute showed that um, young people today are spending less on non-essential items like alcohol, clothing and personal care, and more on necessities like housing, more than three decades ago. So the problem with the current approach in how we are um, thinking about uh, the intergenerational um, economic impacts for young people is that we look at the symptoms. Governments love talking about youth mental health and have spent billions of dollars in services in youth mental health. They don't love talking about the social determinants of youth mental health, things like stable and secure housing. And governments bemoan you know, lowering birth rate, the fact that we're not replacing uh, our, our current populations and there's not going to be enough Australians to support our, our, our ageing population. But they do little to address a key ingredient for family prosperity, which is stable and secure housing. And when they do try to approach the problem, it, it continuates, continues this idea of housing as an asset class. I find it quite interesting, there's this quirk in Australian policy making um, where all policy problems can be solved through our superannuation system. When social security uh, wasn't enough to live on during COVID payments, government let people withdraw from super. When first homeowners needed help to build a deposit, let people withdraw from super. The superannuation system seems to be a panacea for fixing so many problems that the superannuation system was not designed to do. And that makes me deeply uncomfortable because the super system was designed for one thing, to ensure adequate incomes during retirement. The jury is out on whether the latest iteration of this super-reliant approach, uh, the housing accord, will move the dial on social and affordable housing. I hope encouraging big capital will, will result in more supply and increased affordability. While the jury might be out on what, what it, the outcomes might be, what we do know is that this approach to the housing affordability crisis is doubling down on this idea of housing as an investment class. This is why I'm really excited about the potential that community land trusts can play in Australia and of course the role of Grounded in making it a reality. At Think Forward we talk about intergenerational fairness and for me community land trusts are really exciting from an intergenerational fairness perspective for two reasons. Firstly, the model is suited to intergenerational decision-making. So studies on uh, intergenerational decision-making have shown that the more decentralised decision-making is, the further power is away from centralised or federal governments, the more inclined people are to think long-term. So CLTs are locally controlled and democratically accountable uh, through a membership that is open to anyone who lives or works in the defined community. This includes occupiers of land and properties that the trust owns. So this means that CLTs are not just about collective ownership of property, but also about redistributing power from the exploitative systems um, and toward community-led planning and development for the future. 
The second reason I'm really excited about CLTs from an intergenerational perspective is that the 2021 ABS census data showed that millennials are about to overtake baby boomer, baby boomer generation as the largest cohort in Australia. If you include Gen Z, they already are. So I hope this means that the traditional barriers that you spoke about to new models of housing and organising the economy may be lowered. Taking a punt here, but I think that the millennial generation are more open to alternative economic models. The most obvious example of this is the share economy, um, the move away from ownership and things such as cars to collective modes of using resources such as rideshare companies. This has distorted the uh, ownership models of generations prior. CLTs are a natural extension of this trend towards the share economy, with, of course, the benefit of being community-led. I'd like to finish with some reflections on the importance of um, grounded in advocacy and organising. If community-led models are to become a reality, the work of organisations like Grounded will be crucial. Crucial to navigating the different levels of government required to make this model a reality. Crucial to combating the forces that may seek to undermine community-led models. And of course, um, most importantly, crucial to raising awareness and connecting this model with the communities that need it most. Uh, whether that's communities in rural and regional Australia or those that have lived with housing insecurity for generations. When I was reading about community land trusts um, and the model, I was surprised to learn that it's taken off in the US and the UK and is only now beginning to be taken seriously in Australia. Even though it's taken a while, I'm optimistic that um, of a future Australia where we have an economic ecosystem that backs a more diverse model of land ownership. To me, this model holds great promise because it's a part of Australian DNA. We are the envy of the world um, due to things like Medicare and Hex, policies that use collective models to provide security for individuals. Again, CLTs are a continuation of this policy-making tradition in Australia. And I'm thrilled that organisations like Grounded will be working on this to make this a reality for generations to come. So congratulations. Hi, I'm Ruby from Fitzroy Primary and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. You are and you're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we're uh, listening to some of the speakers that were at Grounded uh, Information Day launch last week, grounded.org.au, all about uh, housing and uh, community land trusts. Um, so Sonia uh, Sonia Arakal from uh, Think Forward is uh, giving us an intergenerational uh, view of uh, why uh, a community land trust might be of interest and also uh, what are the uh, perspectives of people who are younger, uh, the younger part or cohort of our community and um, on certain subjects. And then he, they moved on to Bob Knowles. Now, he's from Apollo Bay, and he gave us a really fascinating uh, look at why uh, the present model is, uh, well, as um, it was pointed out, uh, the model that has 20 million investors scaring the shit out of the 20 million others who live on this country Um with uh, housing unaffordability, uh, in a, un, unable to put a roof over people's heads. But anyway, uh, this is what uh, 
Bob Knowles had to say. Fascinating stuff. Our next speaker is uh, from the Apollo Bay Affordable Housing Task Force, and he has inspired a revolving door of politicians wanting to help save his town from the Sea Change Brigade, which removes housing opportunities for locals. Please welcome Bob Knowles. Oh, thank you. It's, uh, it's a privilege to be here. It's very delighted to be invited. I was, uh, I was probably the least equipped president of a, a Chamber of Commerce that ever got elected to office uh, three odd years ago. Um, however, um, in fact, I was about to leave the Chamber of Commerce thinking these guys just talk a lot of flannel and don't get much done. Um, but uh, then someone turned and said, well, why don't you drive? And having been critical, one steps up and does what one can. So that was a big learning curve for me, but certainly uh, it was about 12 months in and, and the affordability things began to bite in Apollo Bay. Uh, and so we held a forum, we, we got the town together and the local council and, and looked at the issue. Uh, and largely we, we approached it as an economic one. You know, we couldn't, people couldn't afford to live here anymore and workers couldn't afford to live here anymore, most importantly. And without workers, we wouldn't have schools and we wouldn't have the services and, you know, and on it goes. Uh, our first initiative, which is really interesting, it was sort of a little uh, insight into human nature. We thought, what, what can we do now? What can we do immediately? And so we with the council's assistance, we wrote to all, we thought we were writing to all the non-resident landowners in the event the dear old council wrote to everybody. Uh, but we wrote the letter and the letter said, this place that you love is at risk. If you can afford to rent your house to someone who works here on a permanent basis instead of seasonally, please do so. I mean, it was longer than that, but that's what it said. <laughs> uh, and uh, the result of... The, so, uh, 2,500 letters went out. Uh, 12 people responded. More than 12 responded by phone and by other mechanisms, but 12 houses were liberated for the affordable. Uh, six people phoned their real estate agents and said, there's a housing shortage, put the rent up. Now we did have a net benefit and some houses, some people contacted the health service, which is our biggest employer in Apollo Bay, and offered housing and they achieved a couple of houses that way. Uh, but it does reveal this dichotomy, this, this problem, the fundamental issue that, that we're dealing with. Um, with the passage of time and then with COVID sending prices insanely high, uh, the, um, the human face of this issue became more and more obvious to me and and people that you know people that you know in the street in a small town when you see people who have never never had to suffer with rental stress before suddenly wondering where they're going to live uh, it's it's very very challenging what's more challenging it's infuriating in fact is attempting to communicate the nature of this problem, of the human nature of this problem, to fucking bureaucrats, you know, to people in who tick boxes for a living. We have had some joy from some politicians. Uh, Andy Medic and Stuart Grimley 
responded positively and engaged with us. And some, some folks, um, we had some interesting conversations with, with some, you know, and some we're working on that kind of uh, responses from people. Uh, so that's kind of the background. One of the things that I believe, I believe in a bit of serendipity in the world a bit. So it's a very long time ago that the Henry George League phoned me and said, would you help us with marketing? And I said, what the hell is the Henry George League? You know. So I had a quick lesson in Georgist uh, economics and I was impressed, I must say. Um, and that's how you got to have the name Prosper Australia. When we were writing the material for that, and I, I should have grabbed the book, because uh, it fell out of, in the back of my studio the other week, we prepared a number of, of advertisements because we knew, what we essentially said to the group at that time was, ideas like this only ever get up in times of great crisis or in times of wonderful prosperity, when people are feeling brave and experimental. Um, and you have, we have neither, we had neither at that time. We are approaching the crisis now. Um, so, uh, and so we thought that any advertising we did would need to be shocking. And one of the ads we wrote, that I wrote, was uh, a photograph of the Lest We Forget Memorial. And the headline said, the land they fought and died for is precisely what's killing us now. And it went on to tell the story of the, of the economics, the, the, the phony economics of land ownership and you know, the Georgia thing. Uh, I think that, uh, and you all think as well, that the time is coming when people understand that your house is not a profit center. I am very fortunate, we are very fortunate to have 10 acres. And when we bought it, it was covered in blackberry. Uh, and we understand ourselves to be the custodians of that land without any, you know, pure and simple. And that idea is well understood by lots and lots of people, most of them much younger than me. <laughs> than me. Uh, the, um, the issue lies with the fences and the, and the failure, the absolute failure of us as a, as a group, as a society, to see those people. I mean, the other night on the news, there was a story of a young woman with a couple of kids who was living in a tent, and I'm not sure if it was in Byron or wherever it was, but it was at the end of the news, and it, was, it may as well have been a new breed of dog. <laughs> you know, it was a human interest story at the end of the news. This was not the vitally important issue that it should have been. Carl and I went to a seminar. We had a couple of ministers, uh, local government people all over the place at Creswick. Was it Creswick? Creswick? Yeah. Uh, and a woman spoke wonderfully about a book she'd written. The name escapes me for the minute I'm old. Uh, but she said, she prefaced her conversation with saying, I could not have written this book when I was homeless. I could not have made this contribution when I was homeless. You know, the cost, and, and, the, and the more infuriating thing is in little old Apollo Bay, we have dug out some statistics. We have discovered that we could employ 123 more people 
in a town of two and a half thousand, that's pretty impressive, 123 more people if we could have houses for them to live in. The Bendigo Bank has, has appointed two bank managers who have accepted the position and then said, I'm sorry I can't come because I can't find a house I can afford. School teachers, policemen, uh, firemen, you know, I'm not just talking baristas and, you know, the whole gamut of, of folk can't afford to come in, in nurses and, uh, and doctors, we help a lot, we're lucky at the moment with doctors, um, can't afford houses to live in. So we counted them up and I said to, at one of our, cause, because the local council of course joined our uh, task force, absolutely, oh, we'll be in the task force. Uh, and so I presented the figures to the task force and I said, can you give us some economic modelling that demonstrates the actual cost of not employing these people? You know, that was a year and a half ago. I've just recently spoken to the REM plan people who said, we've got software for that. As a matter of fact, the council's got software for that. It would take them an hour to feed in the information and give you that data. And, again, and from the Minister Xing, I sought data about, you know, to sort some economic modelling on which we need, which we need desperately, as Carl will tell you, to build the case for whatever we, we're going to do. Uh, and I asked her about data from the floor and she said, oh yes, we have all the data, we have all the data. Uh, and uh, she said, it's here, here and here. And I said, no, 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 I need the information from the data. And of course it wasn't forthcoming and they don't have it. And they're not inclined to find it, which drives me nuts. We need to change that. So I don't want to keep going on. because So that's a lot of the problem. The solution lies in finding people who understand, finding people, and you know them, and if you don't know them, you can make yourself known to them, and talking to them about the issue and what they can do about it. And what they can do about it is advocate, understand Carl's model. I don't personally believe it's the... I think this is a multifactorial thing. There'll be a whole raft of possibilities. We've written to government even suggesting that they give a further tax concession to property owners if they, if they rent their houses to essential workers. Uh, why not? <laughs> why not try anything? Uh, and we're currently, on a, on a bright note, uh, we have um, in Apollo Bay a young woman who's on the Chamber of Commerce who is in the business of uh, needing staff and also in the business of managing holiday properties. And she noticed that a couple of her holiday properties were underperforming. So she got on the phone to those two landlords and said, you know what, for $10,000 a year less, you could have a permanent resident that will cut your grass for you and won't kick the doors in at Christmas time. Uh, and so she liberated two houses like that. Uh, so there are lots and lots of ways to come at this thing. On census night, you know, this is the, the size of the problem. On census night in Apollo Bay, and I'm sure in lots of other resort places, there were 1,350 unoccupied houses. 1,350. We only need 100. Nine out of 10 houses in Desert Head are vacant holiday houses. Yeah. It's shocking. It's truly shocking, the waste of that, of that uh, resource. So we need to have these conversations. We certainly need to educate and advocate, uh, and I'm happy to be part of... Sometimes I get tired. Uh, because the ice caps are melting faster and that's another issue but they are, then this thing is moving at the moment um, but we do need to advocate and we do need to 
bring people to understand that a house to live in is, as that woman said, you know, I couldn't have written a book. I can't do a job. I can't be in your society if I don't have a house to live in. Uh, thanks. back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we're moving on to uh, asbestos which is lurking in uh, one in three Australian homes and uh, we've got Brett Baker who is yeah good you're um, part of the uh, uh, committee that uh, is raising awareness about uh, asbestos and it's lurking awfulness can you tell us a little bit about uh, uh, you know the the size of this issue. Well, what what this month is, I'll I'll run through this month is Asbestos Awareness Month, and particularly the previous week's been Asbestos Awareness Week. And what we're trying to do is is make Australians aware that currently four thousand Australians die annually from asbestos related disease, and that's more than twice our national road toll. And we just need to make people aware that although asbestos was put in structures uh, typically prior to 1990 for residential and prior to 2004 for non-commercial structures, oh, sorry, for non-residential structures, more commercial structures, um, the issue is still, is still here and it's, and it's more prevalent than it was in the past given that these uh, materials 
that were previously typically in good condition are now really at the end of their lifespan and they're becoming quite dangerous as they um, as they deteriorate. Yeah, I'm sure people are quite, um, you know, they've got it in their mind that it was banned um, and that's that was in about 2003, I, I, which is not that long ago really. Um, but, uh, and I, you know, things like the, the use of asbestos in um, places, in buildings is quite amazing because it was such a versatile um and useful uh, in building, wasn't it? I mean, oh, correct. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, it's used in more than three thousand different types of products. Yeah, and um, in building, and also not in building as well, is also used in clutch materials, brake pads. So, in, in the automotive industry, and it was it was uh, in a, in a structure, for example, which people will often come by um, the, the material in their own homes. Um, it can be used in everything from the roof all the way down to the subfloor, even even um, below ground, because um, a lot of the offcuts, the asbestos, typically were just thrown, you know, underneath slabs and, and concrete poured upon them, or even just thrown and littered underneath houses. And so, even tradespeople going into ceiling cavities, subfloors, or anywhere throughout the house, um, there could be asbestos lurking there. And it was used um, in, in, you know, roof sheeting, um, in gable verges, um, in uh, asbestos. Eaves, uh, downpipes, gutters, uh, wall sheeting, um, and it's even disguised in uh, in a lot of products as well. Um, in the in rela- in so far as people did false bricks, um, that um, that they tried to make the make it look like they were bricks, and they're actually it could actually the sheeting containing asbestos. Uh, it was used in glues, in paints, in adhesives, uh, vinyl floor tiles, asbestos backing boards. It was used for fire insulation. It was used for so many different things. I won't sit here and and list the three thousand different products that it was. That it was in, but it's just so prevalent in old homes. Yeah, but also it was in things like, um, uh, like ETU electric or uh, electricians would uh, have known it in the, uh, the, uh, uh, you know, as the insulation in those uh, boxes, you know, the switches. Well, they they use it yeah, in switches. They use electrical backing boards like a zomonite material. They also use it on on some cabling. So you actually have some some cable sheets around some old cabling. You may look at it and look like it's a braided type sheet. Often, more often than not, that uh, that contains asbestos um, in those in those older buildings. And they use it a lot in, in a lot of the switch gear in um, in commercial structures as well on lifts and whatnot. Um, but this material is now getting to the end of its um, you know useful life. And the materials then, you know, it's, it's more prevalent becoming airborne. And that's when the issue arises, is when this material um, is inhaled into our lungs and it causes um, asbestos-related diseases. And, um, and it causes like a lung cancer, mesothelioma and asbestosis. Yeah, so, um, they, in fact, they only, you only need to get one particle. Well, they say there's absolutely no safe level. There's no known yeah. safe level of asbestos inhalation. So, but just to give you some statistics, they believe around about 40% of, um, of home, uh, home renovations or 40% of uh, mesothelioma patients are believed to be exposed during home renovations. So home renovations, this do-it-yourself uh, mentality, uh, really needs to, um, you know, people really need to take a close look at this and realise that they could be putting themselves and their family in danger, and also any any people around them, the neighbours or or anyone else around them. If they go to, you know, remove asbestos, um, they then could get asbestos on their clothing, and they could take that to other areas. They could take it down to the hardware store if they jumped in the car and and went down to the hardware store straight after they've removed oh some asbestos. Um, their their car could be then containing asbestos, <sighs> so motor mechanics could then get in the car. Children, where you may children, loved ones, pets, anybody can get. Uh, into the vehicle, and and this is the issue. 
Um, people can't be complacent and ignorant to the fact and think, oh, she'll be right, mate, and, um, and you know, it's only going to affect me. Well, in actual fact, it could affect everybody around you. In fact, and that's exactly is- what happened. The original uh, uh, rash of this was, uh, you know, direct workers, but then it was people who were cleaning their clothes when they took them home and things like that. Absolutely, and that's um, and that's where a lot of um, a lot of people have been exposed that haven't actually undertaken the work, and that's exactly right. And this is why, although people may say, oh, because the you know the, the the period it takes to actually get the asbestos-related disease can be thirty or forty years, well, I'm not going to live that you know that much longer. It doesn't matter. Well, what about all the loved ones that you have around you? What about the people that are going to to go and occupy those areas where you have removed asbestos? Um, that they could be. Uh, become exposed as well, and people do clean up with their, you know, with their home vacuum cleaners, and this is where the vacuum can then throw asbestos around your house, um, and even days after you've, or weeks after, or months after you've actually undertaken asbestos removal, you may still then be throwing asbestos around. So this is why it's so important to leave the asbestos removal to the professionals. Get a licensed contractor in to remove the asbestos. And if people want to know a little bit more about asbestos, they can also visit the website asbestosawareness.com.au and they can learn just how to manage their asbestos a little bit better um, in their own home or um, even in their own workplace. So what you're really saying is that if someone wants to, and we're talking about, we're not talking about really old homes, like you said, old homes, 1990, uh, that sort of thing. But um, uh, Australia uh, was the uh, took up asbestos with a verve, like it, we took it, we used it more than any other country. Asbestos um, was being mined um, in various states, and uh, and look, asbestos was being used um, throughout Australia. So you can't just pinpoint and say it's oh, in, in this one local area. There's actually the Asbestos Safety and Eradication Agency of Australia. It's a, it's a government-formed agency that was formed in 2013. They've actually put together what they call a heat map, which indicates and shows where um, asbestos typically is um, in, in areas like in, uh, in structures in, in residential homes. And it's shown throughout Australia. So, um, yeah, there's, there's no specific area that used it um, that didn't use it. Um, that it's used throughout throughout the country, and so people um, obviously in the ACT were probably more aware of it than others, given that they had um, these uh, Mr. Fluffy type asbestos, which was um, loose asbestos blown into oh, their ceiling God. cavities that went throughout their houses, um, and that was put there in the in the 60s and 70s, um, and those houses have now since gone through a federal government program, which um, which the government actually lent the ACT government one billion dollars to do a clean up of this asbestos. Um, and they've gone through and demolished um, these houses that contain this loose fill asbestos. Over a thousand of them, in actual fact, over a thousand fifty um, of these um, of these houses have been completely demolished, and the ground then um, the, the top layer of soil then taken off site as well, just to ensure oh that that goodness. asbestos that actually made all its way made its way down into the soil um, has been removed to enable those um, those properties now to be um, you know, rebuilt upon and and have safe occupancy. And so asbestosawareness.com.au is actually the Bible. People need to go there. And you, and on that, there's things like uh, residential checklists for tradies and trade-specific chess, chess, uh, checklist facts sheets and uh, asbestos product database, things like that, real practical information about what people should be alert to. 
Absolutely. Well, it, it gives the average person that doesn't know much about asbestos um, just an idea and some photos and just something that they can relate to, um, just so that they're more aware. Before they, before they start doing any type of um, building renovation or anything to, um, to these homes, they really should go and have a look at this website and just take a great look at, you know, what, what products there could be around because before you even go and drill a hole, you know, into or, or to put a light fitting in or, or to hang something on the wall, um, you should really know if that material is actually going to potentially cause you um, lung cancer. <laughs> Thanks very much for talking to us, Brett. Good advice. No problem whatsoever. Okay, Annie, <laughs> have a great day. A weak solidarity, Bricky team listener, when the last thing we want to do is disappoint an old man. No, no, not me. So spare a thought for poor old Lord Rupert of Wapping if the socialists, if the pejorative Dan win today. Because no person, young or old, could have done more to convince the electorate of just how evil is the pejorative Dan and how good for all of us would be the lobster with a mobster. While the electorate seems to be paraphrasing Peggy Lee. The pejorative Dan or the lobster with a monster, is that all there is? Which brings me to something I wasn't quite aware of at the time, just how bad the 70s were. Not Lord Rupert's 70s, of course, the 1970s. See, the caring business class and the caring business class party tell us the socialist caring business class relations bill, or what's left of it, will take us back to the 70s, and that is bad, bad, bad. Well, yes, the Socialists got elected in 1972 and did some terrible things like provide lots of government services until three years later when Her Most Gracious Majesty and our very, very, very close friend, the U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, were forced to get rid of them and bring us common sense and progressive government in Malcolm Wage Freezer and the caring business class lot. And the lobster with a mobster asserted with his in-depth wisdom that reinvent a state-owned state electricity commission, an SEC, well, SEC light, in fact, whatever, reinventing would also take us back to the 70s. So dreadful were the 70s that he seems to have forgotten the SEC was still in public hands until the 90s, when lobster with predecessor Jeff Foot in mouth bought us all the advantages of the private sector we have since so enjoyed. Jeff, the Lord Rupert of Wapping since totally neutral election analyst who, after taking everything into account, has concluded, surprisingly, the pejorative Dan is even more evil than even Lord Rupert and the Lobster with imagined. In an interview yesterday, the Federal Caring Business Class Party Deputy Supremos Susan Lees and Driggs said it was shameful that the pejorative Dan had voted early. Uh, but... The interviewer butted. The lobster with also voted early. Uh, uh, no, it turned out that was it. That was different. And in the consistency department, we've all come to love with these people. Susan also criticised the State Integrity Commission, largely not holding public hearings. Uh, but the interviewer butted again. Your party is the main reason the proposed federal body will largely not hold public hearings. Uh, uh, no, no, that too was different. Must say as a satirist, I do love these consistencies. They're, they're a gift. The Bolting the Stable Door Award to yet another privatised success story, Medi Bank the Profits Private Be Damned, for assuring us no more private details had been stolen since millions were stolen. Uh, very reassuring that.
Medibank, the profits private be damned, you're bolting the stable door award is on its way. On a positive note, losing an estimated 10 million customers' records earned executives more than 7.3 million in bonuses. The mind boggles of what they might get if they did their job. Obviously, the 7.3 mil plus will be a big incentive to lose even more records next year. Another bunch of great responsible corporates, the much-loved financial institutions, the government has a bill to legislate a few more of the recommendations of the Herbert's Gracious Majesty's Financial Rip-Offs Commission, which found the corporate practices left a, a bit to be desired. This bill about accountability by financial institutions, with the government agreeing with the Greens to include $1.1 million in fines for executives breaking the law leading to much lobbying by the usual suspects and, phew, thank goodness, the government has agreed to rethink all this as the responsible bank spokesperson Anna Blight on Workers, a former socialist state big supremo, showing just how socialist the banks are, or conversely, just how socialist Anna is, Anna pointed out the legislation could have unintended consequences, a phrase the great corporates are forced to point out regularly. Uh, unintended consequences, Anna. Absolutely, we, we could get sprung. Clearly, the much-revered financial institutions would not oppose the bill if it erased unnecessary impediments like penalties for ripping off. The Terranullius people face penalties for opposing progressive corporates attempting to do their bit for all of us on terra nullius non-land. Little penalties like having their culture blown up and bulldozed. But then again, they are terra nullius people. That doesn't matter, therefore. Although, through the goodness of their generous hearts and in response to the proverbial hitting the fan over blowing up thousands of years of history and culture, the great resource giants tell us they will consult with terra nullius people on equal terms before they blow up and destroy their history and culture. And the Minister for all this, Tania Plivasic Environment, decried all that destruction and said she was taking action, like approving giant gas and fertiliser projects at ancient rock carvings on Barra Peninsula. But no problems, because the responsible resource giants have assured her they can move the rock carvings safely and responsibly, so they can use the Terranulius land in a profitable way, rather than have it just sitting there earning nothing, except perhaps the odd tourist dollar. And the industry said a resource super-duper obscene profits tax would be a disaster that would increase the cost of living burden on all of us, showing how their sole concern is all of us. Even though a little bit of an explanation on how them paying tax would increase, but, but no, no, they know what they're talking about. Like Santos us the profits, getting into the industries and Tania's new spirit of cooperation with Terranulius people, well, let's be accurate, non-people, telling the federal court interfering none of their business, Tiwi Island is opposing an offshore gas project with a pipeline traversing their ocean, were not relevant persons. Exactly. They're terranulous and have no right to object, as it appeals against an earlier decision that the Tiwi Islanders did have some relevance to the land and sea they have lived on for eons, and Santosa should have consulted them. 
But as Ted also, as Antosas pointed out, the people, or sorry, non-people affected by their little bit of extraction are not relevant persons. That earlier decision failed to take into account the relevance and rights of Santosas the prophets to the ocean and land they so care about and will so care about until the gas runs out. And just because Santosas has a history of offshore projects causing a little bit of massive pollution is no excuse for ludicrous claims that it might cause a little bit of massive pollution. They care about the environment. That's why they want to put more CO2 and methane into it. The traditional landowners had many connections with the sea country that qualifies as a relevant interest, the islanders Silk argued, including as a food source, cultural responsibilities over the area and totemic significance. What nonsense. That silly argument ignores the most totemic significance of all, corporate profits. The more sensible silk for Santosas made the most sensible point that expecting the company to consult with the affected Tiwi Islanders was unworkable. Unworkable. Yes, they, they might object. A decision is pending. Another caring for the environment community-minded great US of resource giant Shabas the Prophet's Ron has shown how much it cares about True Blue Aussie by generously offering True Blue Aussie as a sink for Asia's carbon dioxide, offering to bury it, presumably at a small cost, in the famous ostrich solution to climate change if there is such a thing. Burying your head in the sand was one of its selling points for its offshore gas project at pristine, ecologically fragile, well, formerly pristine now, I think, Barrow Island off western True Blue Aussie. But unfortunately, several years into production, it's still having a little bit of trouble getting the burying your head in bit to work. And thus, despite its pre-approval guarantees, it's sadly releasing all that CO2 and methane into the environment making its generous offer on True Blue Aussie's behalf to accept Asia's pollution even more generous, apart from that minor fact that it doesn't actually work. We all know how former US of the UN of the US of the world big supremo Donald Trump or the poor attempted to bring balance and neutrality to the Supreme Court, showing its decisions like banning abortion were balanced and neutral. Well, this week, the court ruled that poor Donald had a hand over his tax returns to an inquiry into his tax returns, even though for six years he's been unable to hand them over because they're being audited. Although, in fairness, after six years, we might question the efficiency of the auditor, but and it's not like Donald's trying to hide anything. He's promised time and again that he'll produce them. We know some cynics have suggested he stacked the Supreme Court. Well, after it ruled against him, he bemoaned the decision creates a terrible precedent for future presidents, the greatest terrible precedent ever, ever, and accused the court, direct quote, of becoming nothing more than a political body with our country paying the price. Political body. Can anyone spot the irony in that? Just an update on the Caring Business Class Relations Bill, or, or what's left of it. It's living up to its name as those forcing it to be cut up bit by bit make sure it says what it says, a caring business class relations bill. The crossbenchers support most of it, but with great moral righteousness, just want to remove any clause that 
that it could have the aforementioned unintended consequences like making life difficult for caring employers because they understand the dire social consequences of evil unions having some sort of rights or involvement in caring business class relations. Expressed clearly by Reserve Losses Bank Governor Philip Lopay for you that the one price that cannot rise that would be a national disaster is the price of labour because that would cause all the other prices that are rising out of control to rise out of control. See? Economics. Pure logic. Finally, a couple of thought-provoking letters in the Spencer Street Falfax No Longer Falfax Daily. One very sensible proposal that Her Majesty's Theatre should be changed to His Majesty's Theatre. Someone actually sat down and considered that important enough to write a letter about the fact that the writer came from East Brighton might be some sort of excuse. And next to that, we need respite from elections, potholes, incessant rain and floods. Let me share a beautiful story from Slovenia. There was a huge blitz against drink driving. Drivers who registered 0% were rewarded with tickets to, wait for it, listener, wait for it, to the police orchestra concert. What a novel approach. Listen, I would have thought that would drive you to drink. No pun intended. Good morning. Good morning to you, Kevin. And uh, we're saying good morning to Don Sutherland. How are you, Don? G'day, Annie. It's great to be back with you. And hello to all of your listeners. And it was the perfect uh, um, segue, as Humphrey McQueen would say, to uh, talk talk about uh, the IR bill, because Kevin was on to it as well. Well, Kevin has a certain cut through that maybe I don't have, <laughs> and he sums things up uh, rather sharply. But I think it is worth talking about some of the big issues around uh, that uh, are circulating around this massive struggle, but um, you know that's happening in various forms around the level of wages and the character of working conditions. Yeah. And uh, what the uh, Secure Jobs Better Wages Bill has done is bring all of that to the fore. So there's almost and people, I think, are getting a little bit tired and somewhat alienated from it all. This, all of this huge public debate, but mainly about uh, amongst the commentariat, uh, if that's what's visible anyway. Quite less visible is, of course, that the uh, uh, the unions are mobilising uh, cohorts of their members to persuade uh, at least one senator to support the changes that the new government has brought forward. So there is a real struggle going out there, which is about the ideas around wages. And then uh, in various places, there are real struggles about the material values of the value of wages. But of course, they are entirely restricted by the current rules, the so-called broken rules of the current Fair Work Act. All right, tell us about this. What do you mean? Well, I think the first thing is that this, this this moment is of great significance. This battle that is focused on the parliament is actually of tremendous significance for workers generally. And it's one that if we win, then uh, there will be a mixture of very important changes and some that are not so important and will not deliver much, in my view. But nevertheless, the winning 
lays the foundation for experience for uh, a struggle to get what is really needed on top of uh, the, the, some of the positive things. The the introduced some things which I think deserve support and praise and particularly they relate to uh, uh, gender inequality and uh, uh, other issues that are of significant great significance to working women and their families and uh, so you get things like changes in the objects of the act to include uh, a focus on gender uh, and, uh, and the specific needs of women workers. Those things are really important and if adopted, they will be a breakthrough. The interesting thing is that those positive things, um, there is little to no controversy about those significant positive things. Yeah, yeah. So so we're talking you know, we're, we're talking about the battle. Tell us about the battle lines because yeah, we know that uh, the boss class is not interested in fair, fairness and it's not interested in e- equity and it's not interested in any of the things that the majority are actually interested in. They are interested in power and profit. So tell us what their battle lines are. Yeah, well, the, 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 the changes that are proposed that probably mean a minimal shift in power for workers are the ones that uh, where there, there is the extreme controversy and opposition from the employers. And, uh, and even their minimal changes. So when they, and, they, and they're all around the issue of uh, bargaining. Uh, the fundamental question with them is that they they introduce changes that are mainly about uh, promoting and enabling consensus and arbitration as a way of getting wages moving again versus the use of workers being able to democratically use industrial action. That's the first thing. And in fact, associated with that, in our union movement, there is sort of a coyness and a defensiveness about industrial action. So at times, the arguments in favour of these minimal changes in regards to bargaining um, say, well, you know, they don't change industrial action very much at all, which is true. They don't. There are not. There is nothing really happening to enable workers to exercise their power more effectively on a legal basis using industrial action. In fact, you'd have to say that in some respects, isn't it true that it's uh, uh, enshrining a notion that each time there is protected action uh, that the union has to uh, do it every... Uh, re- uh, new it every three months. Uh, at the present night, at the moment, it's uh, it's one month. So that, yes, you've hit upon one of the specifics in the changes that give the impression of being significant, when really they're not they're not they're not damaging to workers, but they're not they're no there's no significant step forward in terms of their right to exercise their power to withdraw. Labor. Yeah, but it does tie. It's, it's 
but it does tie the unions up um, in bureaucracy. The way it's tied up is through the predicted action ballot, as it currently exists. Yes, exactly. That's the problem. If a ballot is approved by a majority of the workers, and there's all sorts of red tape in there that unions just have not been able to remove, then the entitlement to take protected uh, industrial action lasts for a month. Yeah. They have to take the action within a month. The change pushes it out to three months, and that's for single enterprise agreements, the common single enterprise agreement only. So all the, the process of getting a protected action ballot one, all of the red tape that unions have to deal with there, that's all intact. That does not change. Right. The, okay. The all they've done is done yeah. the, it, it, uh, moved, moved the goalposts a little bit. Yeah, they've just moved it to three months. And they say in the explanatory memorandum that the purpose of that change is to enable more consensus building. Now, of course... What Tell, that to Switzer. Moment, mm-hmm, Tell that to Switzer. Pardon? Uh, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Now, the second thing it does, there is one other quite, you know, quite useful change, is that in the employer, this is not an enhancement, well, it's, a, it's the obverse, if you like, of a removal of an employer right to... Um, uh, cancel an agreement uh, during bargaining if the agreement has expired, which is the thing that uh, Qantas have done and others. So that option for the employer is removed, basically. And so well, that's that a good means thing. that there is, you know, that particular power that employers have had as a statutory power will not be there for them in, in single uh, agreement bargaining. The So the... Uh, uh, that's not unimportant, but it's not a positive enhancement of workers' powers, which are entirely constricted and therefore still against the International Labour Organization's standards on workers' rights regarding industrial action. There is no, there is nothing of significance in there, and in fact, in the new. Um, multi-employer bargaining stream and the changes to the established uh, the existing multi-employer bargaining stream the uh, the notice the notice of industrial action uh, has to be 120 hours in other words if the workers in those news in those streams the amended and the new ones if they they are, they are able to take protected and uh, 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 have a protected action ballot, and if they win, they are then in a protected action period. Uh, and that does go out to three months. But uh, if they choose to take action, they've got to give the employers 120 hours notice. Which is about, a, a, it's almost uh, a week, right? Uh, 120 hours, well, it's going to vary according to, yeah, that's... that's uh, uh, um, rule of thumb, it's not quite precise. Rule but... of thumb, yes, exactly. So, and its purpose is to assist the employer. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, so they can get Uh, other... Well, we're not allowed to use that SCAB word, are we? It's not to enhance the power of the workers. Mm. Now, uh, so we come to the really big thematic question. 
in bargaining that are being brought forward, and there are some that we haven't discussed so far, will they actually get wages moving again? Now, we don't really know. That that may be... That is their intention, as put forward by the government. Um, but what does that mean in any case? You could get wages rising higher than they are, because they have been, you know, arguably in some sectors and for some pockets of the workforce, they have been increasing because of the way the labour market moves. That happens, you know, year in, year out. Um but you get them moving higher, but still not get them above the rate of inflation. And that's what actually happened with that quite significant annual wage review decision earlier this year. It was a significant increase, but after tax, it was still below inflation. And so there was no gain for workers in that relative to uh, prices. It's interesting. It's interesting because um, the whole issue of wages, which is you know imperative for uh, people living within the capitalist model, it uh, it's almost like um, uh, you know because it, it's as if the profits are incredibly high, but they uh, are pushing to uh, screw the workers even more because capitalism requires. Uh, 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 it, it, continuous growth. Uh, they can't do continuous growth because we live in a finite environment, um, and so therefore it, they have to squeeze more out of the production line. Right? That's how it works. Well, uh, there's two points there. Firstly, uh, it, it is generally true that capitalism requires continuous growth, except except for when it needs a recession to clean out its dead capital. And they need to do that in order to make the system more efficient again. That is, as over a period of time, uh, the fixed capital becomes less and less efficient and it therefore can retard profitability. And therefore, it needs to be cleared out. And that's one of the things that recessions or downturns do. But, of course, what goes with that is an increase in the intensity of hardship for the majority of workers. But they don't care about that. They do care about cleaning out dead capital. And just by the by, um, one of the features of the economy at the moment is the number of companies that you could call zombie companies are not even making enough profit, even though profits are going up really high, they're skyrocketing, uh, there's a lot of companies not making enough profit to even pay off their interest on the borrowings they've made, and they're called zombie companies. So they, what capitalism wants is that some spirit, a, a, a sort of a downgrowth period that expels that dead, inefficient capital so that, that what that what remains becomes more efficient at making profit. I, I suppose I suppose what I'm really getting at is that we're focusing on wages, but when in actual fact we uh, need the systems change. <laughs> I know yeah, that's well, any, anyone who thinks this is all about wages uh, is naive. It's it's really it, it, this is really all about profit. And I might say profitability. Now profitability, you can have really skyrocketing profits 
time spreading across, generally across the economy, uh, with profitability. And profitability is a different sort of beast that is rarely talked about in any common sense sort of way. To put it in really plain language, profitability is total profits divided by the value of fixed capital, essentially productive buildings, machinery and equipment, uh, plus the value of wages. So you do that arithmetic. And at certain times, profitability is rising, but it doesn't do that consistently. And it doesn't do that for more than, say, you know, it varies seven to ten years. Mm. When it starts going down, you see, when the Reserve Bank governor has those big, you know, wonderful dinners with employers, every employer in the room is listening to the governor and saying, what's this going to do to my profitability? So when the governor a couple of years ago was calling for them to pay higher wages, uh, every one of them say, oh, yeah, everyone, everyone in the room is saying, oh, not me, but everyone, on the, everyone else should do that, yes. <laughs> so, so you, because the profitability is what really obsesses them, and they pay a great deal of attention to it, and they pay a great deal of attention to making sure that it is not discussed in any of these, if you like, big public debates about the relationships between the working class and the employing class. Well, you know, well, with um, profitability uh, flatlining, as it were, uh, which would be a natural progression, I presume, seven to, yeah, uh, seven to ten years. The evidence is that's roughly what's happening in Australia, that the, we're entering it uh, or may, may be more than entering, we may be further into it than we think, a downturn in profitability. And that means that... Uh, employers want to hyper-exploit, raise the rate of exploitation. And the rate, latest data shows the rate of exploitation really going crazy, really bad for workers, especially in the mining industry. In the mining industry at the moment, the rate of exploitation is about five times higher than across the economy as a whole. Wow. Uh, now, and, and that puts... The, what are, is commonly superficially talked about as the high wages in mining into much better context. And so if the employer, those, the mining industry that wants to carve out the, their situation and say it's special and all that sort of thing, it sure is. They are <laughs> exploiting the workforce in a really serious way. And it has, their, it has the effect of de-unifying the working class because workers who are not on such high nominal wages um, have no time for uh, workers in the mining industry who are really having it ripped out of them at the present time. Uh, Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? We have to Uh, finish up soon, so... uh... Yeah, so um, the final... I guess the other sort of thing is, is... how do you get move, wages moving again from a worker's point of view? And the big question is going to be uh, not just these changes, but the annual wage review. So the annual wage review starts officially in about well, you know, three weeks, something like that. Mm. And we go into that cycle. What flows from that? What should the ACTU claim be? And what should the, the government's claim be? 
wages have to be get have to be got moving. But then he defined it a bit. He said moderate and reasonable. Now, moderate <laughs> and reasonable. Mm-hmm. What does that really mean? Yeah, that's right. That's a great legal statement, isn't it? <laughs> Not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, will Burke say the same thing? The, 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 the onus is on the union movement in the first instance to get a massive discussion going. I mean, the union is now great at political lobbying, and we're right into it with Lambie and Pocock at the moment. Mm. You know, we really are good at that now. Can we apply those methods to mobilising beyond union members to potential union members to get them talking about what our claim should be. Should it be just a keep-up with inflation claim or a catch-up claim? If it's a catch-up claim, it must be around 7% or higher. If it's just a maintenance claim, then it means we don't catch up to what we've lost in the last X number of years. These are the sort of questions that we should get workers talking about. And that way, we can build a process where by the middle of next year, we've got another big increase and we're fighting for an increase that is above the cost of living increases that workers are trying to deal with at the present time. Now, that finally, that means confrontation. It does mean confrontation. And... The consensus and arbitration framework of the changes that are being put forward that give more power, more power to commissioners than it does to workers with a couple of important exceptions, uh, that must be challenged because it will not be enough to win, to get wages moving again using the annual wage review. All right. Okay. Thank you very much for that analysis, Don. Very interesting indeed. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you all again, and uh, I hope we can have one more occasion before Christmas so that I can wish everybody uh, in a proper way um, the compliments of the season, and uh, we look forward to catching up again. All right. Well, we'll make that a date because... uh, We won't be on next week because it's uh, Disability Day, lots of programming around disability made by disabled people and uh, for all of us and for them as well. And uh, so we'll have two two after that. So I'll be listening in because I'd love to know what you're saying about the level of the disability pension. (laughs) Okay. All right. No worries, mate. Uh, Talk to you in two weeks' time. All the best to everybody. And that's it for Solidarity Breakfast. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. We uh, listened to some stuff around uh, intergenerational perspectives on housing affordability. We uh, went down to Apollo Bay and found out about how people living in uh, country towns are being priced out. And uh, we found out about uh, how you have to be careful if you want to do any DIY DIY, uh, renovations of your houses because asbestos is lurking. If you need to find out more about that, you should really go onto the website. I'll find find the website because it's too too terrible. The terrible thing about um, asbestos is that 4,000 people apparently died last year of 
asbestos-related um and 67% of those people uh, tracked it down to their home renovations. Let's see, I've got huge amounts. Oh, asbestosawareness.com.au. Don't do it. Look it up first. And uh, then, of course, we uh, found out about... Um, uh, we got a, a view of the week from This Is The Week That Was from Kevin. And uh, we also heard about uh, some reflections on uh, the industrial relations bill that's going uh, around the place. And uh, that was from Don, Don Sutherland. Uh, We're going to go out with a really nice track from uh, the Bipolar Bears, New Shoes. Listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.